Hi, I'm Rod Quinn, host of the Overnight Programme. Well, we probably do it three or more times a day. But how much do you really know about where the food on your plate has come from? Well, the producer of the Overnight Programme, Manu Bobo, is on a mission to find out. With the help of food historian and associate professor at Southern Cross University, Adele Wessel. This week, they're looking at the history of eggs. Now let's start with that age-old question, the chicken or the egg? Which came first? Technically it's the egg because eggs were produced by reptiles before birds evolved and in terms of evolution the egg had to come first and so on and we know that chickens descended from other birds. But the question also has a religious dimension too. According to Genesis, God created creators and then they laid eggs. As a philosophical question, though, chicken and eggs are inseparable. So when you ask the question, it explains a range of issues, things that don't have a beginning or an end, or it stands in for a dilemma. It's essentially a question about life and the universe and how they began, a chicken and egg question or a catch-22. You mentioned Christianity, and there's, of course, the Christian custom of giving chocolate eggs at Easter. Why is this done? What do eggs symbolise? Well, for Christians, eggs have been used to symbolise the resurrection of Jesus. Creation myths often start with an egg because they can symbolise life and they represent rebirth and fertility and the cycle of life and so on. Because they contain life and because they're round, they can also mean the cycle of life. So I think that's where resurrection comes in and the cycle of birth and death. And then you can have particular dishes that also represent something specific. So at the cedar table, for example, at Passover, hard-boiled eggs are often dipped in salt, and that's to acknowledge that life sometimes brings tears and it brings pain. And hard-boiled eggs can symbolise determination and resilience in the face of tragedy or sadness. Easter eggs are sort of interesting because they kind of show how the symbols can evolve as well. Eggs are an ancient symbol of new life, and they were associated with pagan festivals that celebrated spring, which is around Easter in the Northern Hemisphere at least. And at Easter they can be associated with new life and renewal. That's the reason why rabbits come in as well. So people often find that a bit of a challenge (laughs) to try and work out how eggs and rabbits kind of come together. But it's really because of their symbol in terms of life. Let's explore the history of eggs a little further. Where did they originate? Well, thanks to genome research, we now have got a pretty clear history or a bit of a map of the domesticated chicken. And it has a genealogy that stretches sort of between seven to 10,000 years. Chickens today largely came from the present-day red jungle fowl, and that's native to tropical and subtropical Southeast Asia. So in their natural habitat, which you can see in places like the Philippines, for example, they eat off the forest floor, they eat insects and seeds and fruit, and they fly up to nest in trees at night, and that kind of keeps them safe. But that's about as far as they can fly. So that's sort of made them much easier to capture and also to raise. So there's some idea that chickens were probably the first domesticated animal and they've been useful for a whole range of reasons for eggs and for meat. And then once they were domesticated, a series of things, you know, cultural contact, migration, colonialism and so on, all led to their introduction and reintroduction in different places all over the world over the last sort of thousands of years. They were in Sumer and Egypt and then in Greece about 800 BCE Before that, though, before hen's eggs would have been introduced, the Greeks ate quail eggs, and that was um, a source of food. So there would have been other eggs eaten before um, hen eggs actually were. The other thing, of course, is that chickens were used for other purposes besides eating, and the Chinese, for example, relied on roosters 
to wake them up. They called them the domestic animal who knows time because roosters were so dependable. And chickens were used in cockfights, um, so their feathers were worn by Roman soldiers. And although they began farming chickens for eggs, they were also used for a range of other purposes like the feathers and so on as well at the same time. I mean, the history, I guess, of um, hens and eggs in Australia is largely through colonialism. So it's most closely associated, I guess, with the English history of eggs as well. So when Caesar invaded Britain, there were already chickens there and they were used for both cockfighting and they were used for their eggs at that time. But the interest in chickens kind of peaked around the 19th century with this phenomenon that historians have called hen fever. So that was kind of the beginning of hobby chicken keepers that came at that time and started what was called a chicken craze by importing a whole lot of different sort of species of chickens, mostly from places like China. Although the diversity, because of selective breeding and so on, the diversity now has um, largely disappeared. So today, egg or meat chicken is usually the product of four purebred grandparents, which is quite different to the past. I guess that brings us to how eggs were preserved before refrigeration. How could people tell if they were off? It's an interesting question because the same, you know, if you let chickens, you know, lay naturally now without lights and so on, there would have been egg gluts at various times and then other times chickens, you know, go off the lay, it's called, so especially during winter and so on. So they would have had needed methods to preserve them so that they were available outside those times and before refrigeration that would have shortened their life somewhat. So most of those methods relate to keeping bacteria and air um, out of the egg because the shell, of course, is porous and so it can take in air and that'll make it go off much more quickly. The old foodie, is, who's one of my favourite food bloggers and well worth looking up, gives a really good description of preservation methods, so I'll just read that out. The commonest methods were by immersion in lime water, a more popular method for large-scale preserving but having the disadvantage of giving a limey flavour, or alternatively by immersion in water glass, sodium silicate, a common household method that kept the yolk central in the egg. Other methods were burying them in salt, dipping them in sulfuric acid, boiling them briefly in boric acid, and painting them up in oil or coating the shell with glycerine, petroleum jelly, wax or varnish or a product like that. So it's hard to imagine now, but obviously it will smell. I don't know if you've ever smelled a rotten egg, but it's horrible. And you can also shake the egg. So a fresh egg doesn't really make much sound, but the older it gets, the more egg kind of comes in and the thinner the white is. And so it sort of makes a bit of a sloshing sound. But if you want to check how fresh it is, and that also will help in terms of what you want to use the egg for, the best way is just to fill a bowl or a glass with cold water and you put the egg into it. And if it sinks to the bottom and lays flat on the sides, that means it's really fresh. And if they're a few weeks old, but they're still good to eat, they'll kind of stand up on one end, you know, at the bottom of the glass or the bowl. And if they float to the surface, then they're definitely not fresh enough to eat. So... Really fresh eggs are great for frying and poaching when you're just kind of using them on their own. But um, older eggs are often generally easier to peel after they're boiled. So if you wanted to use them for that purpose or people say too that older eggs are better for making meringue because the white gets a bit thinner and it's easier to foam. 
Why is it that some supermarkets stock eggs on shelves and not in the fridge? That's an interesting question too because it largely depends on kind of the regulations and the way that the the eggs are treated. So refrigerating eggs in Australia isn't a, isn't a requirement like it is in the US. In Australia, eggs have to be washed and there's sort of less chance of interior contamination while the eggs are forming so they can be kept on the shelf. Although if you wanted to keep them longer, a lot of people now will put them in a fridge when they get home. Whereas in the US, they have to be washed in hot water before being packaged too because of fears of salmonella infection. There's some evidence to suggest that washing the eggs weaken the shell and actually makes them more susceptible to infection. So to combat that, the clean eggs are um, then moved to cooler rooms and refrigerated basically until, um, until they're taken home and then used for cooking. And then in the UK, the eggs aren't washed or refrigerated. So it's kind of largely depends on the way that the eggs are treated and I guess on, on consumer fears and so on as well. Adele, how have eggs been prepared historically? Some of the more kind of interesting historical ways would be things like roasting. So there's no doubt that bird eggs would have been roasted from the time that fire was mastered and so that makes it even before Homo sapiens appeared. So eggs are one of those really ancient meals, I guess, that connect us to our ancestors, which is interesting. Um, salting and pickling also, they were really old methods of treating eggs that preserved them for use throughout the year. You can keep pickled eggs for up to a year without refrigeration just by once you've cooked them, immersing them in a solution of vinegar and salt and spices. And if you do that, I don't know if you've ever tried them, but you can eat the shell and everything with those. Uh, the Chinese also preserved eggs, um, mostly duck eggs they ate rather than hen eggs, and they packed them in salt, ash and lime and used tea. Uh, for some kind of flavour and the salt draws the water out and inhibits the the growth of the bacteria. And then uh, fermented eggs were also prepared so you can make fermented eggs by covering gently cracked eggs in a mass of cooked rice or some other kind of grain and that's mixed with salt and leave that to mature for about four to six months and the white and egg kind of coagulate so that you can eat them straight away if you wanted to or you could actually cook them or use them in a recipe. And then getting closer to sort of the way that we prepare them now, Romans, we know that Romans ate fried eggs and boiled eggs and also soft eggs. And by the Middle Ages, the French were already making omelettes and the English were dressing poached eggs with sauces, the way that's popular there. And over about sort of 300 years from then, egg white foams and meringues and yolk baked dishes and so on started to appear uh, in cookbooks as well. So a lot of the new recipes are ways that we prepare eggs now kind of follow on from some of those sorts of basics but largely have changed because of sort of cultural change and travel and cultural contact rather than necessarily inventing new ways to prepare dishes so I don't know if you you could think about something like um, breakfast burritos for example and they're still basically using fried eggs but sort of mixing them with different ingredients. Now, I can tell you I have never eaten an egg with the shell. I don't know about you, but <laughs> it doesn't sound too appetising to me. Probably really healthy because it probably you probably get a lot of the calcium in. So what are some popular basic egg dishes today? Well, 
you started with boiled eggs. People have a really strong preference for the texture of their eggs. People who like soft-boiled eggs hate hard-boiled eggs. People who like hard-boiled eggs can sometimes feel sick about soft, soft eggs. So eggs cooked in their shell, I think people have a particular kind of preference for. And the problem is usually that the whites become rubbery really quickly because it sets, the white sets at a much lower temperature. So there are still cookbooks that will tell you exactly how to prepare an egg for really well and Hester Blumenthal for example spent a really long time doing experiments to find the perfect way to boil an egg. Cooking times obviously change depending on the texture you like and some people like coddled eggs that are just gently or lightly cooked and other people will like them hard. So out of the shell the next closest thing I guess to a soft boiled egg is the poached egg and that's much more popular today than it used to be could be partly out of health concerns you know that people were cook didn't want to cook things in fats and oils Um, although fried eggs I think is still really popular in Australia the other sort of new newer way of cooking that's coming through is baked or shirred eggs which are cooked in the oven and they're much more popular now so I don't know if you've ever seen Moroccan eggs cooked in a sort of spicy tomato sauce and so on that are baked in the oven those those will regularly appear on menus and they're actually quite good for Uh, being able to make a whole lot of other things I know breakfast cooking becomes um, quite a challenge sometimes when you've got eggs that have to come off at three minutes and you're trying to make bacon that's not too burnt and so on so I think that's one of the one of the great things about them especially for serving in restaurants scrambled eggs and obvious and omelettes and things they're obviously something really different because you've got other ingredients added too so cream and butter and milk and oil um, vegetables herbs and the yolks and the whites are often mixed together, although you get those white egg omelettes as well. Um, omelettes and frittatas, they're usually um, cooked until they've stabilised, and the difference is that omelettes are often folded while you, where you'll get a frittata that's kind of open-faced. And a good omelette takes some panache, which is why you see omelette cooking as one of those things in popular culture, which is supposed to generally be a sign of what your talent's like as a cook. Now, I've noticed eggs can come in different sizes. Has that changed over time? Yeah, well, eggs have become much more standardised in terms of size and sorted um, according to weight. And in terms of factory farming, if you were to think about you know, the typical industrial egg layer now is probably born in an incubator it eats a diet that largely came out of laboratory research it lives and it and it lays its eggs on wire and under lights often for about a year is their general kind of laying life and during that time they'll produce about 250 to 290 eggs and those eggs are available all year round so All of these changes have just been introduced really over the last century. If you think about the beginning of the last century, around the 20th century in Australia, mostly um, we had small-time poultry keepers and cooking a chook was a pretty rare event. Like roast chicken was even a treat that you'd still have at Christmas time. At the end of the 19th century, we ate about two eggs a week each and that's kind of doubled in one form or another. So... Most egg farms 100 years ago, they were still backyard systems. They still supplied families and then the extras were just sold and the chickens mostly roamed around outside. So all of that's kind of changed um, with science and technology. And so you've got the introduction of things like incubators to breed chickens in separate hatcheries from where they're actually living. 
And the hatcheries then would choose the strongest and the healthiest birds and different strains as well so that they would get more efficient production and that kind of consistency, I guess, that they were looking for. Even before World War II, most egg production in Australia came from flocks where you'd have less than about 400 hens. And from the 1960s, this has shifted largely because of commercial operations. So it's much more common now to have flocks of about 10,000. And in New South Wales, which has one of the largest um, or the largest producer of eggs in the Southern Hemisphere, there's one company has 750,000 birds. So you can imagine there's different kinds of treatment and so on. And chickens and eggs, they've both become really cheap food. They've become much more uniform and they're available all year round. And, you know, they no longer have to be preserved in lime water, for example. But obviously all that's at a cost. So if you keep chickens under lights to stimulate them to lay more eggs, then you have to add vitamin D to their feed so they don't need to go outside at all. And being able to feed them less because they're not moving around, all those things have lowered labour costs and made them cheaper to consumers. And it also means that maybe because of that, people are also eating them more eating more of them but obviously that's that's come at a cost as well. Adele people seem to be happy to pay a premium for free range eggs but there's been quite a bit of controversy recently in Australia about the incorrect labelling of caged eggs. What constitutes a free range egg? Yeah I'm concerned about industrial um, and the industrialisation of egg production. It's obviously produced some changes you know that, that that's been voiced and consumers it appears, are much more willing to pay for free-range eggs. Although it's only this year that we've had a national definition of free-range eggs and that definition is still controversial. So the idea is that hens have to have, quote, meaningful and regular access to the outdoors and the density of chickens outdoors now can't be any more than um, one hen per square metre or that works out to be about 10,000 hens per hectare. This is quite different, though, to the model code of practice. So that's the standard that was preferred by the RSPCA, and it's also the one that's been used in the ACT. And what they had suggested when the discussion was going on was 1,500 hens per hectare. And a lot of the smaller producers have called for much stricter legislation, and they think that the definition has kind of favoured the much larger producers. So even in amongst that, though, 65% of Australians now do opt to buy free-range eggs. But because the labelling debacle has been so confusing, I think people aren't always really sure what they're getting. And it can be really useful um, to actually find out exactly what sort of condition, I guess, that chickens are coming in because are being grown in. Because if you are kind of paying that extra and it's something that you care about, it's well worth finding out. Now, Adele... Egg yolks contain more fat than egg whites, but by how much? And is there any protein in egg yolks? The yolk is smaller. It's a smaller part of the egg, but it actually has a lot more nutritional value. It contains all of the fat, and I guess that depends on where you stand on the question of fat. And it contains a bit less of maybe half the protein, but a higher proportion of all of the vitamins in the egg as well. So the egg white accounts for most of the weight of the egg, and more than half of the protein, but it also has none of its fat, which is why it's popular in low-fat or low-calorie diets. They contain virtually everything that you need to make a chick, and so that's also its value as a food, and it is one of the most nutritious foods that we have. But the history of egg consumption does kind of suggest 
as well that it's sometimes subject to different ideas around around health. So Australians, we're now eating more eggs than ever before. So in 2011, kind of last time they took a reading on this, uh, it was 12.9 million eggs every day, and that's an increase of about 10%. So we eat each an average of 213 eggs a year, and that's partly attributed the increase to the idea that eggs don't necessarily increase blood cholesterol. So previously people thought that and would often have just eat the egg white. But if you're on, say, a low-carb diet, people aren't concerned often about the fat in the egg yolk and will eat the whole lot. Why are eggs generally sold by the dozen? Yeah, I think that this is a kind of historical question, really, and it relates to the egg symbolism that we started with. So the number 12 has a lot of special significance, and it has for thousands of years, and from Jesus' 12 apostles to the fact that we have 12 full moons a year and there's 12 months in a year and so on. And then there's the historical question around the imperial system. So it had 12 pennies to a shilling, and that made it a lot easier to kind of cost the eggs as well. But The imperial system probably came as well. So it's a chicken and egg (laughs) question, probably came as well from that kind of symbol. So breads and bread rolls are sold in the same way as well, although it's harder to understand this uh, now that we have a decimal system. And there are some companies that will sell eggs just by 10, but most will still sell them by the dozen. Besides eggs from hens, what other eggs are eaten? Yeah, I've been mostly talking about hen's eggs, but ducks, obviously, um, ostrich and quail eggs are also quite commonly consumed. Uh, Duck eggs themselves are quite rich and they're often used in custards and mousses and cakes. Some people eat ostrich eggs. They're the largest of all the bird eggs. They're about 20 times the weight of a hen's egg, but they tend to be farmed for their feathers rather than their eggs. Small quail eggs, as people are eating more quail, I guess, as well, are also usually eaten. They're poached or boiled, and they're perfect for canapes. Goose eggs, they're also similar to duck eggs, but they're milder and are often used for baking as well. More historically, if you're kind of looking at... um, you know, Australian history, Aboriginal people ate mallee eggs and emu eggs, although because the emus were so prized, then they weren't necessarily killed. They would be used more for reproduction and sort of favoured that way. The mallee eggs used to be set in sand around a fire and Bruce Pascoe's book about um, Aboriginal agriculture, which is fantastic, talks about the way that eggs, mallee eggs, could be stored in chambers that were made of clay and straw. And commonly, they would be accumulated if there was going to be a ceremony so that they could cater for large numbers of people. And emus, of course, were a source of food by early settlers as well as Aboriginal people. But Aboriginal people tend to only kill them by necessity and they'd also use the whole carcass. So the oil and the bones were shaped into tools and so on. So they were farmed more for meat and oil and leather uh, rather than eggs. And emu egg carving, of course, was also really popular in the late 19th century, but it's a whole subject of its own. What's the origin of a dish like Eggs Benedict? 
Yeah, there are different sort of stories about this. I mean, like much history, there are different stories about the origins and they're kind of recounted. And I think it relates more as much as anything else to the status of particular restaurants. So the two stories that I know, both of them credit starting the dish in 1894. But one with, was with a woman called Mrs. Benedict and she was a regular patron of Domenico's restaurant in New York. And she asked that she couldn't see anything on the menu that she wanted. So she asked the chef to prepare her something new. And he came up with Eggs Benedict and named it after her. And then the other story is about a Wall Street broker who was suffering from a hangover (laughs) and he made up his own dish. So he wanted some buttered toast, crisp bacon, two poached eggs and a hooker of hollandaise sauce. And this one comes from the Waldorf Hotel, but also in New York. And the chef was so impressed that he put the dish on his breakfast and luncheon menus and just made some substitutions. So used an English muffin instead of toasted bread, for example. So what would Australia's signature egg dish be? This is a tough question, actually, about any signature dish for Australia, but I don't think you could discount fried eggs as an Australian signature dish. When you think about the kind of the popularity of fried eggs and bacon at barbecues and recovery parties and uh, early morning football games and so on. But I think it's also hard to go past maybe the pavlova and thinking about meringue generally. And this is controversial, of course, given that, that, you know, the disputed origins of pavlova and whether we should credit New Zealand with the invention of it. But um, that's probably another another conversation of its own as well. It is indeed. (laughs) Adele, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Enjoy your eggs for breakfast. That was food historian and associate professor at Southern Cross University, Adele Wessel, exploring the history of food with Overnight's producer, Manu Bobo. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.